Hey, welcome. Welcome to have everyone this morning. If you're a guest this morning, we're especially glad that you're here. Grateful to have those who are joining us live stream as well. Our series in the month of December is Hidden Christmas. And we're looking at some of the hidden roots of Christmas. And today we're going to be looking at the faith of the shepherds. I want to pick up where Linus left off. Linus read us the uh, first part of this passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. I want to read the rest of those verses this morning. When angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Okay, why are the shepherds in the account? Why are those included? I mean, every year thousands of little children put on their bathrobes and they portray shepherds in Christmas scenes. But why did Luke include this incident, of all the incidents he could have included, in his account? Could be a number of reasons, but I think that one of them has, has to do with how the shepherds responded to the message that they received from the angel. And there's a good model for us there. We're going to look at four ways we respond to the Christmas message and really the gospel in general. The first thing is to hear well. The shepherds heard well. Again, verse 15 of Luke chapter 2. They said, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So the shepherds went. They overcame their fears. They went and saw. They spread the message. They were rejoicing. They were impacted. Now the people that they told were amazed. The Bible says they were amazed at the things the shepherds told them. Doesn't say they believed, doesn't say anything about how they were impacted. It could be the shepherds were impacted more strongly than the people who heard the shepherds. Why might that be? One thing that is evident, the shepherds heard the message from angels. Everybody else just heard from the shepherds. And of course, shepherds had no great social standing back then. They don't today, but they didn't back then. Not of a lot of influence. If a message we receive is challenging or difficult to hear, it can be tempting to dismiss it or minimize it based on the messenger. So there's a lesson for us there. And really, our model here is Mary as much as anyone because of the two ways in which she listened. But the messenger, don't dismiss the message because of the messenger or the medium. Guys, we got some married guys here this morning. Have you ever had this happen in your marriage? You say to your spouse, you ask them about something, an event that's coming up, and she says... I already told you. We talked about that, and I told you about that. Weren't you listening? What is the proper response to that question? Number one, no. Number two, I'm sorry. I know I listened, but I didn't really hear you. It didn't sink in for whatever reason, and we need to revisit it again. That can be a detrimental in a marriage, but it's absolutely destructive when it comes to our relationship to God. We have to hear well and listen to what he is saying. Now, so we've got the same problem as the people who heard the shepherds in that the message is coming to us in an ignorable form if we want to ignore it. I mean, whatever else angels were, they were very gripping and magnetic messengers. So the people who wrote the Bible, they got visions from God, they had dreams, they had angelic visitations, they had revelation from God himself. What do we get? We get a book. And human messenger. We get preachers and teachers who are all too flawed. You know, every time one of us messes up, 
It's, you know, people are tempted to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and turn away from God altogether. So we can't be distracted by the way the message is coming to us. There's value there. As much as the, all the gold and the silver that's buried in the earth, the Bible says, is, is the value that's in His Word, the Word of God. You know, uh, I, I'm a little bit biased when it comes to the messengers, the TV preachers, especially if they seem just too perfect. And I have one in mind right now. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But if they just seem that like they've got perfect hair and perfect teeth and perfect skin and a perfect body and designer clothes and they seem so successful, I find it hard to take them seriously. Like, what suffering have you ever experienced? And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Steve. You just described yourself, basically. I understand that. <laughs> There's exceptions to the rule. But I, I think of some of the, uh, the, the preachers and the messengers of God who've impacted me. They weren't necessarily all that to look at. Wayne Smith, for instance. Now, Wayne has passed away. But a beloved preacher of the gospel for generations, some people here may have heard Wayne Smith. We got one couple that used to be in his church. Great preacher impacted me. Not, I'm not being... You know, trying to take anything away from him, but not all that to look at. Bob Russell is another one. A lot of us have heard Bob Russell's teaching. He's not homely, but he's not a movie star. Here's another guy. This guy has impacted me, a lot of us. You know, but uh, another exception to the rule. That's a good-looking man right there. But the point is, God spoke to Balaam through his donkey, right? Spoke to Balaam through his donkey. So the medium is not necessarily the message. It was still a true message. Can God use a donkey to speak today? Now, hold it a second. Don't, some of you wanting to go somewhere, don't go there. But yeah, what did Mary do? She pondered these things and she treasured them in her heart. She pondered these things and she treasured them up in her heart. So to ponder is to think about, to meditate on, think about the word that we're reading, the sentence, the verse, the passage. How does it fit in with the other things in God's word and our experience? What's the meaning? What's the application? You know, to go deep with the word, to think about it, think through the implications we have this in Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words give light. And I brought this in this morning, the unfolding of your words. So I got a little thing folded up in here, and you probably have items like this. It may not be exactly this item, but look at this little bag. But what's inside it, you know, when you take it out and you get it all unfolded, is a pretty good-sized item. This happens to be a raincoat. Have you seen things like this before? Ponchos or mylar blankets or a tent or whatever folded up in a tiny little package. Some of you might have wished you had this raincoat earlier today. But it unfolds and there's, there's a lot more there than it seems like when it first meet the eye. Likewise with the Word of God, right? I know you have probably experienced this. You come to God's Word, you may be dealing with a passage like the one we're dealing with today, pretty familiar to us. But here comes a teacher or here comes or we're at a different place in our life and we realize a truth or a meaning or an application there we never saw before. It's one of the things I like about the one-year Bible. Those of us who use the one-year Bible, it's just another thing. Reading through the Bible year after year after year, these become familiar passages, the Word of God. But every time you go back to it, isn't there another wrinkle, another fold, another depth of meaning that maybe we never saw before? So we meditate on these things, we think about them, but also she treasured them in her heart. It's kind of a different thing from pondering. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart. Treasuring in our hearts has to do more with our attitudes, our emotions, 
reading not just for cognitive knowledge, but allowing that word of God to comfort us or to change us. If this is true and if I really believe this, how would this change my life? I'm preaching to myself. How would this change the way I feel? Maybe the way I feel toward my family or, or my neighbor, the way I feel toward God. We allow the word to sink into our hearts. We ponder and we treasure is hearing well. Okay, here's another aspect of the shepherd's response. Make peace. Make peace, Luke 2.14. The angelic message. Peace on earth for those on whom his gracious kindness rests. Now, the whole deal about peace, this is one of the, the themes of Christmas that we hear every year. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. What's the deal with peace? Part of it is this is recognizing, and I know this, I know we know this, but let's revisit it, recognizing that the, the human heart, the natural human heart, is at enmity with God. God claims the right of lordship over our lives. Right, he's the Lord. He's, he's in charge. He's the boss, so to speak. Why? By virtue of creation, if nothing else. He created us, therefore he has the right to lordship. But our, you know, our natural response to that is to push back. Uh, an irreligious person will just come right and say, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to do you know, what I want with my life. No, you're not my Lord. Now, we religious types have to be careful. Sometimes our pushback is a little more subtle. You know, it's more like this. God, I'm, okay, you're my Lord. I will obey you. I will do what you say in return. You know, I expect to have the good life, and I expect to have the blessings of life. And It's, it's an unspoken understanding that we think God owes us for obedience and discipleship to him. And if you don't think that's the case, you know, listen to the kind of responses that happen when people are going through difficulties in their life. God, how, do, how could you allow that to happen to me? I mean, I've been faithfully following you. I've been sacrificing to you. What about her? She's one of the best disciples, one of the best Christians I know, and, and you took that from her. And Maybe it may be in the area of grief loss of life, maybe in the area of health, maybe in the area of finances, maybe in the area of estranged family members. God, why are you doing this to your obedient child? As if the understanding is, if I obey, you owe me this. Well, that's just another kind of manipulation of God. It's not true humbling submission to his sovereignty or his salvation. What are we talking about? Peace with God when our hearts are naturally at enmity. To have peace with God, and we're talking about salvation really at its heart, we have to come to a point in our lives where I recognize not only have I sinned against God, but even the good things that I do, even the obedience that I offer is often offered out of impure motives. Even that is not going to count toward my salvation. If I am to be saved at all, it's going to be 100% by the grace of God. Not by, what, not by any of my good stuff, and certainly not by my bad stuff. But Christ and sinners reconciled, as the, hymn, the Christmas hymn says. Christ and sinners reconciled. That the baby came to grow up and die on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God and have peace. 
Let me read you something about Roger Fisher. You probably never heard that name before in this context, Roger Fisher. But after serving as a pilot in World War II, Roger Fisher attended Harvard Law School. He spent 34 years specializing in negotiation and conflict management. He founded the Harvard Negotiation Project and worked with numerous countries and world leaders on peace resolutions, hostage crisis, and diplomatic compromises. But it was in the 70s and 80s, as the threat of nuclear war escalated, that Fisher developed perhaps his most interesting idea. At that time, Fisher was focused on designing strategies that could prevent nuclear war. He had noticed a troubling fact. Any sitting president would have access to launch codes that could kill millions of people, but that president would never actually have to see anyone die because he would be thousands of miles away. So he writes in 1981, my suggestion was quite simple. Put that nuclear code number in a little capsule, then implant that capsule right next to the heart of a volunteer. The volunteer would carry with him a big butcher knife as he accompanied the president. If ever the president wanted to fire nuclear weapons, the only way he could do so would be for him to first, with his own hands, kill another human being. The, the president would say, George, I'm sorry, but tens of millions of people must die, starting with you. He has to look, someone, look at someone and realize what death is, what an innocent death is. Blood on the White House carpet. It's reality brought home. He writes, quote, When I suggested this to friends at the Pentagon, they said, That's terrible. Having to kill someone would distort the president's judgment. He might never push the button. Exactly. And I thought about this in terms of our peace with God, and it's kind of flipped around. In order for us to be at peace with God, God had to take the knife, so to speak. It was the cross, but take the knife, so to speak, and plunge it into his son's heart the only true innocent victim in our stead so that Jesus could take all that war. God wouldn't have to go to war with his children because he put all that war on Jesus in our place so that we could have peace with God. That's what it took. And listen, it wasn't child abuse. The second member of the Godhead, Jesus the Son, also God volunteered. Both God the Father and God the Son were willing to do this to pay that price. Why? Because of love of love for you and love for me. Now, talk about peace with men. When we get to that point, when we realize we can only be saved by the grace of God, when we have humbled ourselves so that we can receive that salvation, and by the way, there are four gospel commands to enter into a peace treaty with God. They're not commands of the Creator. They're not law commands. They're not works. They're gospel commands by which we enter into peace with God. They are, believe the gospel, repent of sin, confess Jesus as Lord, and be baptized into Christ. And when we are baptized into Christ and our sins are washed away, we enter into a peace treaty, so to speak, with God. We have that peace. When we have that humility and we have recognized we don't control people, we don't control our circumstances, God is sovereign, we're dependent upon God, we have learned conflict resolution skills that will help us be at peace with others. So that spouse who maybe is driving us crazy or that neighbor who lets their dog come over and poop on our lawn or we're driving in traffic and somebody cuts us off and we're tempted to have a road rage incident right there, that person that considers themselves our enemies and is tormenting us, 
we remember not only did God pay that price, his son's death, so he didn't have to go to war with me, he doesn't want to go to war with them either. He paid the same price for them. That person is a beloved son or daughter whom, God, whom Jesus died for. And we're a little bit hesitant to go to war with another person. I'm not talking about as a nation. I'm talking about our personal relationships. We're a little bit more hesitant to go to war. We're a little bit more inclined to try to make peace with our neighbors and our family and even our enemies. Is that what, that's what God wants. That's why Jesus came. Hear well, make peace. Here's the third thing, fear not. Fear not. Back to verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Why do angels always seem to say that? <laughs> Whatever, you're sophisticated enough to know this. Whatever angels are, they're not those little bewinged babies on the Hallmark cards with the little, the little bow and arrow. They're, they're something else altogether. Now, I'm always bemused when... <laughs> Sometimes people say, you know, yeah, an angel appeared to me and had this message, or God spoke to me, and this, that, as if it's an everyday occurrence. In, in biblical accounts, when angels appeared to people, there's one or two exceptions to this, but by and large, when angels appeared to people, number one, they either got sick and threw up, or they got sick and threw up and passed out, or they just skipped the sickness and passed out, stayed passed out for days. There was something utterly terrifying about an angelic presence. So there's that, fear not. The first thing they have to angels have to say is, don't be afraid. But it may not just be that otherworldly creature, but that they are coming from the presence of God. Because God and His holiness and His glory in the Old Testament especially has this same kind of effect. And even Jesus. A lot of times when people recognize who Jesus was, what kind of a being He was, they reacted in the same way in fear. Remember uh, when Peter had early on had met Jesus and Jesus performed a miracle and Peter began to understand who he was dealing with. In Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Lord, leave me because please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. You know, we're so afraid. And understanding the nature of our fear and the origin of our fear helps us to understand one of the primary motives that we have and that other people have, fear. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, what were we designed for? A perfect relationship with God. Perfect love. And where there, where there is perfect love, there's no fear, the Bible says. If we had stayed that way, what are we, we're afraid of rejection from people. Well, if you had that perfect relationship with God, we wouldn't really care what other people thought. Or we're afraid, we're afraid the money's going to run out and we're not going to have enough check at the end of the month and we're not going to have the food, clothing, and shelter. But if we had a perfect relationship with God as our provider, we wouldn't really be afraid of that so much. Or we're, of course, we're all afraid of death. But Jesus is the life, and God is the life. When we had the perfect relationship and we trusted God enough, we wouldn't even be afraid of that. And ultimately, we're afraid to turn our lives over to God's total control. This was the message of the serpent. God's holding something from you. God doesn't want you to know. God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want you to be happy. And we're afraid. Why? Some of the things, God, you want me to do seem counterintuitive, certainly countercultural. I'm not sure I'm going to be happy that way. Satan says you won't be happy. You've got to take control of your own life. You've got to take the shortcut and forget what God says and do it your way. That's the only way you're really going to have happiness. Otherwise, you're not going to get married or you're not going to be able to stay single or you're not going to be able to have this health or you're not going to be able to have the prosperity. You can't trust that. You've got to trust yourself. So 
message of the angels is the baby's been born. That baby is God in the flesh. And he was willing to come and put himself at the mercy of other human beings. I mean, a baby is totally dependent. And entrust himself to God, totally, to God's sovereignty and care. If he can do that, can we trust God with our lives? Yes, we can trust God with our lives. If we contemplate and remember that, and that's the fourth part here, I call it behold. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. This goes back to an older translation, but I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. The King James Version reads as, same verse, fear not, don't be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good tidings. Now, all the modern translations, if you have NIV or New Living Translation or even New American Standard, I went back and checked all of them. None of them have the word behold anymore. I guess it's because it's archaic, old-time English. But that is in the original language. There is a corresponding word in the Greek that means behold. And what they're actually saying is be perceiving, be looking, be thinking about, be beholding. There's something to look at here and contemplate and let our minds rest upon that if we do, we won't, be, we won't have that fear. And what is it? A Savior is born to you. God and sinners reconciled. Jesus come to save us. If he's come that far distance for us, he is worthy and we can trust him. Max Lucado tells about a teenager living in a small village in Brazil. She's a teenage girl. And you know how they are sometimes. They feel under their parents' restrictions and their rules that their, their parents, her parents are keeping her from having happiness and the life that she wants and all of her potential in this little tiny village. She longs to go to Rio. And one morning, uh, as Lucado relates, her mother wakes up and goes and checks her bedroom. Her bed, bed's empty, and she's gone. And mom knows what has happened. She's gone to Rio de Janeiro. So the mother heads straight for the bus station. On the way, she stops at one of those photo booths, gets scores of pictures taken of herself, and then she boards the bus and goes to Rio and spends many days looking for Christina, her daughter. She can't find her. Rio is huge. But everywhere she goes, she staples up or she tapes. She places pictures of herself on telephone poles and hotels, on mirrors, with a little message on the back. And then after a few days, she goes home, cries all the way home on the bus. Weeks and weeks later, the daughter, Christina, is coming down the stairs of a hotel building. All the lights gone out of her life, her eyes, all that hope and that hopefulness and that joy, it's all gone. Many times she has thought about going back home, but she doesn't. I mean, that's where she was happy and had security and safety in her family, but she's not sure that her family would ever want her back now. She gets to the bottom of that staircase. She looks across the hallway, and she sees a familiar face, her mom's face. She goes over there to the mirror and takes that photograph, turns it over and reads these words. Dear Christina, whatever you have done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Love, Mom. And she did, because who could resist? a love that would go to that links to bring her back. We're revisiting an old familiar theme and an old familiar message from the angels, but isn't this part at least of what it means for the incarnation, for God to send His Son all that distance to come and be born 
and then live and then die for us on the cross. The gospel message, and I know most of us are Christians, but it's good to hear this again, and somebody maybe needs to hear this for themselves today, is whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home to Jesus. Love God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for preserving this account here, the angelic message to the shepherds and their response, how they overcame their own fear, they went and saw, and then they spread the message, and they were full of joy. We pray that we can hear well, and we can obey, and we can banish the fear that we live with, that you are not worthy to be our king and our sovereign and our Lord. We know you are, we know that, because of what Jesus has done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.